because every time I taught last summer, the uh, recording, something happened, and the devil is a liar this summer. So, um, hello everyone. I'm also going to start my phone. Ah, we're going to start my phone timer because I have 45 minutes. And while I was going over my lesson, I was going, I was exceeding an hour 30 minutes. So I have to, I have to make sure that we are on time. So we're going to be looking at Romans 11:33 and following this afternoon. And um, the first thing I want to do is uh, we're going to walk through this lesson in four parts. We're first going to be looking at the occasion. Uh, that brings about this doxology, this passage of the scriptures is what we call a doxology. It is uh, an exclamation of praise to God. And so we're going to look at the reason why it appears in the text from the context. Secondly, we are going to look at some observations from the text itself to understand what Paul is exalting with regard to the uh, nature and uh, knowledge of God. And thirdly, we're going to be looking at the grounds that Paul provides of the nature of the knowledge and wisdom of God. And then, by the Lord's assistance, if we have time, uh, we will proceed to some use to be made of this doctrine. So let's begin with looking at the occasion. The occasion of this passage has regard to the preceding verse, particularly verse 32, where Paul says... um, God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Now, that passage is a summation of all of the argument of the 11th chapter of Romans, where Paul has argued that in order to do God's redemptive work in history, he has judicially hardened the Jewish people so that the gospel will go out to the Gentiles. And then in the Gentiles... Um, receiving the gospel, they will provoke the Jewish people to jealousy, and then I believe it's making a a prophecy of what's going to come as the Jews, from their jealousy, turn on mass to the Lord. Uh, Not only does it speak of this, but I think it is also making reference to God's sovereignty in the existence of sin in the world. And I was going to talk uh, a very long period of time about this, because I think it's a very important reason why this doxology appears in the Bible, because that doctrine makes people very uncomfortable. The sovereignty of God over sin, the God's purposing that sin exists in the world. And there are many people that perhaps when I quoted the phrase that God has consigned all to disobedience, that's an active verb on the part of God. In some versions it says he has shut up all in disobedience. And some people might be very uncomfortable, and at the moment that you hear that, you might be trying to rework the words of the text so that it doesn't really mean what it says, or that it doesn't really mean what it means. Uh, And some people just might feel a raising up, a rising up in their heart, or a, a consternation that is brewed in them. And the purpose of this doxology is actually to shut your obstreperous mouth. Because the reason why Paul is exalting God is to show that where we have consternation over God being God and His sovereignty... 
Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is exalting God because of his wondrous wisdom and knowledge. It's like in the Gospel of Matthew, where many people have difficulty with the idea that God will hide the means of grace from certain people, and yet Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have concealed these things from the wise and from the learned, and you have revealed them unto babes. Or as Romans 9 says, uh, when Paul says that God hardens whom he wills, and he has mercy on whom he wills, and there's the imaginary objective that says, um, how can God find fault for who has resisted his will by the Holy Spirit? The Apostle Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And this is how this doxology functions. It functions to show that if you have a problem with God in how he makes use and dispenses of his own creation, it's a demonstration of your vast ignorance in light of his vast knowledge and wisdom. And thus, if that is how you feel, we should probably repent. Um, I, I've had those feelings of consternation concerning these kinds of doctrines, and it's very express in Scripture of God's authority over all things and His right to dispose all things according to His own wisdom and His own knowledge as He sees fit because He's God. And the Scripture says that He knows all of His works from the beginning. And so I want to take a look at what Paul wants us to see in this text with regard to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. First of all, Paul is going to tell us that God is a being that is possessed of wisdom and knowledge. Now that might sound very obvious to us because we are in a very Christianized world uh, where we have a very personal view of God, but there are actually uh, worldviews in the world, especially in India and China, that are very quickly being imported into the West and into the Christian world that deny this fundamental premise which we uh, affirm about God. Um, Hinduism, for instance, has two doctrines which I would say are diametrically opposed to what we believe about the nature of God. Firstly, um, the Hindus in general would say that God is profoundly simple in his essence. Now, we believe in the doctrine of simplicity. Uh, we're going to teach about the doctrine of simplicity in a few weeks. God has no parts. That's what uh, the doctrine of simplicity means. He is not a compound being. He has no metaphysical parts. He has no temporal parts. He has no some other third thing that I can't remember parts. And so we believe in the doctrine of God's simplicity. But how the Vedic worldview would take that is to say that God is being simply considered in himself. And thus, the error comes in where they say that thus everything that has being is God or participates in the divine essence. And so thus God is rendered not as a personal being, but he's the great and mighty force of nature. So God is the wind caressing your skin. He's the heat of the sun upon your brow. He's the budding of the lily. He's the great and mighty hurricane that roars across the Atlantic. And I cannot think of any doctrine more repugnant to the divine glory and honor. Because the Bible is very clear, and what Paul is presupposing in this text is that God is a being who has knowledge, and therefore, being a being that has knowledge, he cannot be a process. Processes do not have, uh, are not imper uh, 
processes are impersonal. And that's the problem, that the understanding of God as the great process of nature removes his personhood. We believe that God is a personal being. The Bible speaks as God as so far being beyond the course of nature that uh, he is called high above the heavens, and his glory is said to be above the nations. The Bible says that he sits above the circle of the earth. The Bible does not say that the Lord is the flame of fire. It says he divides the flame of fire. The Bible does not say he's the hinding of the calf. He's the calving of the hind. The Bible says he makes the hind to bring forth young and uh, strippeth bare the forest. And so it is an absurd and uh, monstrous error to suggest that God is somehow one with his creation. And Paul is presupposing that God being a being possessed, being a being, possessed of wisdom and knowledge, sets him beyond being a part of the mere course of this nature, of this world. Uh, the Bible actually teaching that the being of God is possessed by three co-eternal persons tells us that not only is God a personal being, but that there is no being in existence that is more personal than God. And that is an important doctrine that we must hold to, lest we be guilty of blaspheming God to his face. Secondly, what God would like us to see in this text is that God is a being of vast wisdom and knowledge. The Bible teaches here, uh, if I can be me for a moment, <clears throat> and take a look at the Greek of the text, the word that's translated in our text, inscrutable, is the Greek word anexaruanao. It's a very long word, and it's actually what we call a hapax legomenon, which means that it appears once in all of Scripture. And so, this one word is what the Holy Spirit, by the pen of Paul, chooses to describe the knowledge of God. And this word, the, the root word, saruanao, uh, means to search out diligently. So it means to put a great effort into searching something. And then the prefix, ek, puts strength and emphasis on that word. So it's if you were to exhaust all of your means to search something out diligently. And as many of us know, if you put in the Greek language in alpha in front of a word, it's a negation. So it suggests that if you were to put all of your efforts into searching out the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God, you would fail miserably short. It is as if you tried all your best to compile a compendium of the knowledge of God by filling the universe with books on the subject of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, and you find that you have not even begun to scratch the preliminary of the subject matter. This is the picture which the word inscrutable gives us of the vastness of God's knowledge. The scriptures say, Great is the Lord, and mighty in power. His understanding is without limit. When it says that he is without limit, we see a unity between the beautiful doctrine of the infinitude of God and the knowledge of God. That just as boundless as the being of God is, so too is the boundlessness of God's knowledge. And thus we should be overwhelmed with the knowledge and wisdom of God. Am I on two or three? I'm on three. Ah, ooh, we're making good time. Praise God. Um... <laughs> Thirdly, I want us to see that God is a being possessed of perfect wisdom and knowledge. If you look back in your text, 
Paul here quotes the prophet Isaiah when he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, the idea of a person giving a gift to the Lord is giving us the sense and understanding of the concept of debt. And I'm sure that there are many people in this room who understand the concept of debt. Debt is, the, is in a state of being in such a deficit that one must go outside of himself to supply that deficit. And likewise, the idea of a counselor, when we have our president has what we call the cabinet, and he has uh, the Department of State, and he has the Department of Interior, and he has the Department of uh, Energy, and this would be kind of, um, it would correspond to the Privy Council in England, where you have people who are ministers over certain affairs because the president, as much responsibility as he has, is insufficient to know everything about everything. And so he needs someone to augment his abilities and augment his understanding so that he can govern properly. And this is negated when it comes to God. And thus it's speaking of the sublime perfection of his knowledge. There is no deficit within the mind of God that has to be supplied. He doesn't go and ask Susan what her opinion is. Because I just don't know what I'm doing, Susan. What do you think I should do? How do you think I should create the world, Jeffrey? Well, I don't know, God. What do you think, Bob? That's not what the Lord does. He has no need to ask anyone any questions. And when he does, it is merely a marvel of mercy that he does so. The doctrine of the perfection of God suggests uh, fundamentally that God does not learn. That there is nothing that enters into God from without that supplies something that was lacking before. And if I have enough time, let me see how much time I get. This suggests what we call the doctrine of God's impassibility. God's impassibility is not what some people would mischaracterize. Uh, uh, there we go. What some people would mischaracterize impassibility as, which is to say that God has no emotions. That's, there's a difference between what we call uh, passus or passions, and affections. And the word pasus makes reference to not that God has emotions, for the Bible is very clear that God has emotions. He rejoices, he mourns, he has wrath, God has hatred, he abhors things. So the Bible is very clear that God has affections, that is, emotions. What, what impassibility suggests is the ground of God's emotions. That at the very core of God's emotional life, and thus the grounds of God's mental life, is not responsive to his creation. That though God does truly interact with his creatures in time, his mercy is more a resolution of his will than it is a response to how cute and cuddly you are. Um, the, uh, the, the way that we have love is that, you know, you see somebody who's just really beautiful and she affects you and you just can't get over it because, oh my gosh, she was just a beautiful woman and I was just a powerful time and she was just lovely. And so now you can't help yourself. But God doesn't have that experience. God never looks at anything and says, oh, that's just, that. I just can't be without Caleb. He's just so amazing. I just have to have Caleb. The reason why God loves Caleb is because the Bible says he sets his love upon Caleb. It is a resolution of his will. 
And thus we find is also the way that God's mind works. It is not passive. He, nothing unfurls before his eyes that he takes into his mind. The knowledge of God is perfect and cannot be augmented. So, let's move on to talk about these three grounds that Paul gives for uh, the nature of the knowledge of God. And hopefully I don't belabor too much, uh, take up too much of the time. In verse 36, we see that uh, verse 36 begins with the word for. And so we have to ask the question, um, is for merely a throwaway word here? Or is Paul actually trying to make an argument about something? And because I believe in plenary inspiration and that there are no throwaway words in the Bible, I have to uh, concede and um, admit that Paul must be trying to argue that there's something about these three prepositional phrases that say something about the nature of God's knowledge being vast and God's knowledge being perfect. And so let's take a moment to take a look at these three prepositional phrases. The first is from him, and I actually, I can't remember what version this was, but this is a good version, because it renders the word in Greek, ek autu, as from him, as opposed to of him, which some versions render it as of in the English language, makes reference more to possession, which God does possess all things, but that's neither here nor there. The word ek is where we get the word exit, or um, exonerate or exegete. It means to come out of. And so this passage is saying that all things have come out of God, which I think is very obvious that it's making God, it's claiming that God is the creator of all things. So how does it appear that God's wisdom and knowledge are grounded in his creation of all things? Let me turn to Psalm 139. I meant to turn there earlier and then I forgot. Because that's just how my life works. So let me turn there. It should only take a moment. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. I've got to turn the page. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar away. And search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hid me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. And then let's jump down to verse 13. If you're following with me, I know I turned here really fast. (laughs) Verse 13. He's giving the ground. We're going to see that this is very similar and more explicit than Romans 11. For it was you who formed my inward part and knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and I know them very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast! is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to an end. I am still with you. And so what this psalm is suggesting, and I skipped over the part about the presence of God because I can go into a lengthy discourse about how the the knowledge of God relates to the presence of God, but we ain't got time for all that. And so I skipped down to verse 14 because we see a natural correlation between God's work of creation 
and his work of knowledge. The assertion that we see, not work of knowledge, his knowledge, the assertion which the psalmist and Paul make is that God knows everything because God created everything. That the reason why God knows every molecule that exists in the universe is because he brought them into existence. And the reason why God knows every one of your thoughts afar off is because he brought your moral substance into existence. The Bible says that he knows my uprising and my downsitting, which suggests that God knows all things within the natural world. That means he knows of planets, and he knows of people, and he knows of trees, and he knows of stars, he knows of chemical combinations, but also the Bible says that he knows my thoughts afar off which means that he knows everything that is in the moral world, which means that he knows what's in the hearts of men. He knows the deep secrets that you've never told anyone. He knows every intention and inclination of your heart. And the ground of that is because he created everything about you. And therefore he knows everything about you. But the Bible does not merely stop at the doctrine of his creation as the ground of his knowledge. The Bible goes on to say that through him, are all things. Now this term, di, autu, makes reference, there are different ways that the word di can be translated, and so I'm going to belabor this for a moment, because it could be considered as by instrumentality of, or it can be understood as by means of, and I'm not going to belabor the difference, because that's going to take a long time. But this, because of the, the nature of the text, and because of the case that it's in, it's suggesting that God is the means of our being. That means that every breath that we take is by God. As the Bible says in, I believe it's Acts the 17th chapter, in Him we live and move and have our being. Or as the Bible says in Revelation the 4th chapter, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive power and glory and might, for by your will all things, note the tense, exist and and were created. It's not that they existed at one point, by the will of God, but each and every moment that something continues to perdure in time, they exist by the will of God. And thus, we see that God knows all things because of His work of providence. He knows all things. If I were to ask someone, or if you were to ask me rather, how God knows how quickly the earth spins around its circumference, it's not merely because the Lord observes it in time, it is because it is the hand of the Almighty that turns the earth. It is not that God knows the hairs that are on your head because He's counted them, it is because there is not one hair on your head that can grow apart from the power of Almighty God. There is no stirring within your heart that is not governed over by the Almighty God. For the scriptures say that he turns the hearts of kings wherever he pleases. He turns them like waters in his hand. And if he can do thus with a king, with a monarch, with a sovereign, how much more easily can he turn your heart whithersoever he pleases? And thus we see that the nature of God pierces deep within the depths of each and every human soul. Nextly. Is nextly a word? Anyway. Um, God knows all things because all things are to him. Now, what does it say? Yeah, to him are all things. Now, this one was kind of difficult for me. I had to think about this one for a little bit, because how does it appear that God's knowledge is vast and infinite and perfect because all things are to him? 
I, like ha half of that you have to ask, what does that even mean? Because the first two are kind of easy. And so I believe that this word to him, I think it's on there, ice auton, you don't care. Ice <laughs> auton, it makes reference to, I believe, how all things in creation tend to the glory of God. Uh, as for instance, in the book of Exodus, when God is speaking of destroying Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, he says, I will get me glory upon Pharaoh and upon his army and upon his horsemen and upon his chariots. <laughs> and he goes on to talk about all the glory that he's going to get from Pharaoh in destroying them, the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. In the book of Isaiah, in the 43rd chapter, no, not the 43rd chapter, I made that up. It's in your Bible. In the book of Isaiah, the Bible says, All whom I have called and those whom I have formed for my glory, I will bring unto me. The Bible says uh, in the book of Ephesians, Now unto him that is able uh, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think according to the power that works in you, be glory, honor, and power. The Bible says in the book of Timothy, unto the king, eternal, immortal, invincible, the only wise God, the only one God, be all glory and honor, dominion and power, both now and forever. The Bible says, uh, speaking of the nature of the Christian life, that Paul prays that we might be filled with the fruit of righteousness unto the praise and glory of God. And in another place, Paul says that God might confirm every inclination for good. Uh, for good. No, I'm con that's in Thessalonians. This is in 2 second, uh, second Corinthians. It says that God may convert people so that many faces in turning unto him may redound unto thanksgiving and glory. So we see from the text, and I can produce many other examples, that God has fashioned all things that come to pass so that they will redound to his glory and honor. As the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, God has made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of destruction. And so we see that God has made all things to tend to his glory. So what does that have to do with the knowledge of God? Well, I think that the only way that Paul can ascribe this action to God as being wise is if God knows himself so perfectly and thoroughly that he knows that it would be a good thing that all things tend to his glory. If there was anything lacking in God, if there was anything deficient within his being, if he was not worthy of infinite regard, then it would not be wise of God to cause everything to regard him in the final analysis. And so what this text or passage of the text makes reference to is what we call the scientia eminentia which means the knowledge that God has of himself. It is his perfect knowledge of everything that is within him. That there is nothing, unlike us, there's many things that we don't know about ourselves. When we have some sort of ache in our body, we can have a headache, and that can just be a headache, or it can be cancer, we don't really know. Uh, when we have some sort of moral failings, it can come just because you're a jerk or because, you know, something happened traumatically in your childhood or both, you don't really know. There's nothing about the being of God that is like that. God knows himself perfectly, and thus in order to know himself perfectly, how vast must his knowledge be? And what kind of God must he be? 
in order to comprehend such a vast abyss of majesty and glory. Let me see how much time I got. Hold up. <clears throat> ooh, glo- ooh, hallelujah. Ooh, we're about to go there now. So let's proceed for a little bit to the use to be made of this doctrine. I have several uses. And the first of which is that the doctrine of God's omniscience should prompt a holy fear in each and every one of us. Uh, consider that God is a being before whom, even though you can hide your thoughts from him, uh, from men, your thoughts are as blatant to God as the sun in the noonday or an Ethiopian walking about in the snow. Uh, God is so perfectly aware of everything that is about you. God sees every one of your secret thoughts. He knows your uprising and your downsetting. And there might be some people, even under the sound of my voice, who think that you might be able to come into the crowd of God's people and just because you show up to church on Sunday or you come uh, to a Bible study on Wednesday that God will not notice you entering into his presence and that you can sneak into heaven unseen even though you have no regard to holiness and you have no regard to his son and you have no regard to obedience to him. And all the while you're not aware that the parable says that the Lord eyes were intently fastened upon the man. And when you sit down and expect for the Lord to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, you may very well hear, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And then you will hear again, cast him into outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. For you did not know that the hope which God's people have in themselves is that the Lord knows them that are his. There is a perfect knowledge which God has of you. And do you think that you're going to be able to strut into his presence with all of your uncleanness and all of your undoneness when the heavens are unclean in his sight and he charges his angels with folly? Do you really think that you can grapple with the Almighty who can lay out all of your sins before all of the world as on a sheet? The Bible says that the Lord is him who searches the heart and he tries the reins. When it says that he searches the heart, it says that he is the person who makes note and does a deep analysis of our moral estate. But not only does he search our moral estate, the Bible says that he tries the reins. And the reins are a fancy word for your kidneys. And because the kidneys in the bodies of mammals are the most interior part of your body, they're covered with fat and they're covered with muscles and they're covered with skin and they're not covered with bone. But they're very difficult to get to and thus in the scriptures they represent a deep secret parts of a man. What we would call your subconscious or even your your unconscious or your subconscious. And the Bible, when it says that he proves the reins or he tries the reins, it's speaking as if he arraigns even those deep parts of your thoughts that are unaware, that you're unaware of. And he will put them on the witness stand to speak against you. And the Bible says that he will uh, proclaim what was done in secret on the housetops. And the Bible says that he will disclose the secret things of men according to the gospel. And I would like you to note that it says that he will judge the secrets of men according to the gospel. That the judgment of God is not contrary to the gospel. It is a wonderful and blessed part of his gospel. And thus, if you have not found refuge in a mediator, 
namely Christ Jesus by faith and repentance. Oh, what an estate you're in. If you think that you are going to somehow mock God, even though you have brought no fruit forth to Him, oh, what an estate you're in. Secondly, the doctrine of omniscience should prompt in us a doctrinal humility. Now, what do I mean by a doctrinal humility? Because that might not be what you're thinking that it means. A doctrinal humility, what I mean by that is that there are some people who will not believe in certain doctrines until they have an exhaustive knowledge of it. So there are some people, perhaps in this room, who refuse to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, because I don't understand that. And they don't believe in the doctrine of the Incarnation, because I don't understand that. They don't believe in the doctrine of eternal punishment, because I just don't understand how God could do that. They don't understand the doctrine, they don't believe in the doctrine of predestination, because I don't understand how God can do that. And that's your constant mantra. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand how God can be three in one. I don't understand how God can punish the wicked. I don't understand. Have you lost your mind? God does not ask that we have an exhaustive knowledge of everything that He is and everything that He teaches in His Word, but He does command that we submit to Him because He's God and we are His creatures. And when people act in this way, they imitate uh, so dreadfully Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who were so arrogant that though God had brought them uh, to, the, to be nigh unto His service, that He had caused them to, to worship and to carry the most sacred furniture in the tabernacle, yet they had to arrogate themselves to the priesthood also. They weren't satisfied until they could be priests. And are you not the same if this is you? who are under the sound of my voice, that not only has God offered you the completeness that is in the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid, namely Christ, uh, and not only has he offered you all of the wisdom that has been hidden from emperors and kings and princes and wise men and philosophers and people who have more political clout than you will ever even hope to have in your life. He passed them by and he offers them to you and you're going to say, no God, unless you make me a person in the Trinity, I'm not going to believe it. You know, God, unless you, you give me all of the knowledge that you have of yourself, then I'm not going to believe it. What pride this is. What arrogance it is and what affront it is to God. And if you have trouble uh, obeying God's commands because you are a finite creature, it's an absurd position to have when you stand before the Almighty. And I pray that the Lord would grant you repentance. Thirdly, if God is omniscient, then you should seek to get known of God. The Bible speaks of a kind of knowledge of God that God has especially for certain people. There is a way that God knows everything which comes to pass in time, and there is a way which God knows specific people. That the Bible says in the book of Peter that we are saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in the Old Testament somewhere in your Bible, it says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. They are thoughts of peace and not of evil. The Bible says in another place, uh, you have I known above all the families of the earth. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't know the other families of the earth. It's suggesting that there is an intimate knowledge which God has of His people 
which he doesn't have of any other people. That's why at the last judgment, Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. It's not that he didn't know your name. It's not that he didn't know your address. It's, there is an intimacy in God. There is an intimacy in knowing God that we should all strive to enter into. And even if, and I'm going to hope and plead and guess that many of us have closed with Christ and thus have peace with God through Jesus Christ, but it does not stop merely at our conversion that there are ever-increasing levels of joy in knowing God and in being known of Him. That will be one of the joys of heaven, that we will be continually known of God, and we will continually know God. That's why Paul says, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 13, when, when faith becomes sight, and then he says, and I will know God as I am known of God. You know that we should search for that kind of knowledge in this life. Fourthly, I think this is four. I should have written these down. These I just have, I keep things in my brain. Fourthly, we ought to trust God because of His wisdom and knowledge. It would be a foolish thing not to trust a person who knows everything. It would be a very foolish thing to trust a person, or three persons, that is, that know the end from the beginning. It would be very foolish to, to think about someone who knows how every single event in all of history corresponds together and who not only knows them, but is actively working them, and you just cast his um, wisdom aside. God has given us a beautiful picture and um, dossier, essentially, of his wisdom laid down in his word. And how often do we follow it? How often do I follow it? We see the wisdom of God on display in how we ought to live, and yet we would rather turn to our girlfriends and ask, what's your opinion, honey? Because I'm dating Fred, and honey, I just don't know. And, well, what does the Bible say? Well, I read my Bible, but hmm, I just need a second opinion. Have you lost your mind? Uh, and it's just, it astounds me how foolish I am and how foolish we are in knowing that here God speaks in the pages of His Word and yet we don't listen. Here we hear God speaking by His Spirit through His people and yet we don't listen. It's a marvel of the darkness of the human heart uh, that we can be so ignorant. Fifthly, if God is omniscient, then we can have a hope that that God is working all things for the good of them that love Him, the called according to His purpose. The Bible says in the book of Second uh, Peter that God knows how to keep the ungodly under punishment. And it says that if He knows how to keep the ungodly under punishment, then how much more does He know how to preserve the righteous in trials? Since we have a God who is all-wise, He knows how to make all grace to abound toward us. And thus, why should we be afraid? Scripture says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Such a wise shepherd this is. And shall we not humble ourselves before Him? Shall we not follow His guiding and leading? 
or shall we just walk in our pride and the obstinacy of our hearts? Sixthly, and this will be my last one, we ought to give God the glory. And that's right here in our text. The Bible says, To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. How often do you consider the vastness of the knowledge of God and thank Him? How often do we think of His matchless height of wisdom and thank Him? How often do we think that not only does He have a matchless height of wisdom and knowledge, but He has actively employed His wisdom and knowledge on the behalf of you? The Bible says that He has loved the stranger and giving them food and raiment, but He has loved us by showing us His statutes and by calling us to Himself. When was the last time you glorified Him? When was the last time that from the depth of your heart you rendered up to Him the thanksgiving which is His due? I would just have us to consider those things as we go about in our course of life. Let us pray. Father God, it is a weighty truth that You are the God who tries the heart and You search the reins. Even when we read texts like, Oh Lord, You have searched me, I don't know if I can say that with celebration more than I can say it with horror. Because if it were not for the spotless and seamless garment of Jesus Christ covering my own wretchedness, my soul before you would be like a heap of corpses writhing with maggots. And yet, God, you've been so kind to us. You've been so propitious to us in Christ. And we are so grateful that we can be known of you in light of his awesome work. And that your knowledge will change us from one glory into another. Grant God that we should fear you as you ought to be feared. Grant God that we ought to give you glory, that we give you glory as we ought to give you glory. Grant God that we would walk in your ways of wisdom, that men might see us and say, Who are this people? And what God do they have who is so wise and so knowing? Lord of you, and through you, and to you, are all things. Unto you be glory, forever and ever. Amen.